You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, serial SPAC dealmaker Betsy Cohen found her seventh target, a technology provider for financial services companies. FTAC Athena Acquisition Corp. agreed to merge with New York-based Pico in a $1.75 billion deal. This comes after Cohen's SPAC deals for Perella and eToro. So we spoke with Betsy Cohen and started by asking her what it is about SPAC specifically as a vehicle that she finds so appealing. Well, I think it permits uh, a lot of flexibility and the and the opportunity to understand the needs of a company and structure a transaction around it. It also uh, allows a company that has come to an inflection point of growth to be able to show and share with investors on a deep discussion basis what the company's about and what it might look like uh, two and three years out. So it has a number of aspects uh, of real conversation, real analysis, and uh, real commitment on the part of long-term fundamental investors uh, to understand the company. And so with regards to, Betsy, the idea that this will continue, the idea that maybe not at the frenzied pace that we've seen, but the idea that this is now considered a viable and legitimate way to come to market, that we'll continue to see this maybe for years to come, that right alongside some of the big IPOs, there will be big SPACs. I, I think that we have uh, finally crafted a third leg to the stool of uh, the transition from a private to a public company uh, being uh, direct listings and IPOs being the other two favorites. Uh, and that this vehicle does not uh, fit every company just as an IPO does not or a direct listing. So yes, I think we will see uh, the normalization, the optimization, and the uh, appropriate use of the SPAC vehicle uh, for a long time to come. Of course, you've taken, you've been prolific. I mean, eToro, you took public in this particular way, a company I knew well from covering uh, the European tech market, also looking at platform pioneers, pioneer, for example. What 
are, can you give the sense of a fintech business that does suit this sort of way? What sort of fintech businesses are really getting you excited? How do you zone in, hone in on the target that you want to really acquire? Well, I think first we look at the underlying business and the <clears throat> both macro and uh, uh, vectors of uh, the marketplace. And uh, having been an operator and a founder of fintech businesses, have a great appreciation for where those businesses might fit in what's really a total ecosystem. Uh, we then look at management. Is management ready? Are they strong? Are they able to guide through uh, uh, difficulties? You know, the pandemic provided us almost with a petri dish for evaluating um, uh, management because there are many of the, well, there were many opportunities to tweak or to really change strategy that uh, became uh, beneficial to the company as we ended this first phase of the pandemic. So we learn a lot about management. Is the company ready? Does the company have the internal structure that's required? Because we're not only looking for good companies that might right. have a great idea, but those that'll be good public companies. Well, in theory, there's only so many good companies that have a great idea that uh, match all that criteria. There's a lot of money out there still. And I'm curious, how would you characterize what distinguishes your work from, say, many other uh, you know, blank checks that are out there currently that might be competing against you for some of the companies that match that bill? And what do you, what do you bring to the table? And what should an end investor think about when they're thinking about, well, why should they invest in one of your SPACs versus any other? I think one of the distinguishing characteristics of SPACs that has emerged in the last, I don't know, month or two months is really a differentiation among sponsors. Uh, the SPAC as a vehicle uh, for execution appears to be uh, an easy, almost a magic moment. Uh, but I can tell you from experience that it requires deep knowledge of a variety of different uh, aspects from capital markets to the base business mm -hmm. to an understanding of management and therefore distinguishing among sponsors for the experience that they've had for the success that they've had not only on the stock price because these are companies that should be more valuable two and three years out than they are today that's what we look for but also in terms of uh, what I'll call seamless execution. And so I, I think those are distinguishing characteristics and the investor should be looking at them. This week, President Biden's long-awaited $1 trillion infrastructure package got bogged down by an unlikely culprit on Capitol Hill, cryptocurrency. Searching for new funds to pay for the legislation, a provision was added to step up tax reporting requirements on cryptocurrency transactions. As written, the proposal is estimated to raise $28 billion. But another group of lawmakers are warning that the language is too broad and could give the Biden administration the opportunity to crack down not just on cryptocurrency brokers, but on Bitcoin miners. So I caught up with one Republican senator who is trying to narrow the language in the crypto amendment, Cynthia Lummis of Wyoming. I started by asking her how confident she was of her language changes being inserted. 
Um, I'm not 100% confident. We're working on that now. We're working with the floor managers of the bill. We're working with uh, Senator Wyden of Oregon. So we have a bipartisan group working on this legislation to clarify uh, that brokers uh, means people not to include minors and others who really don't have access to right. the type of customers and buyers and transactors uh, that we think that Treasury is trying to get at. Let me ask you, you're very knowledgeable about Bitcoin and crypto in general, and you've established a reputation as someone who really cares about it. But I have to imagine that a lot of your uh, colleagues just don't think about it very much, and that when you talk about a miner or a node or whatever, that they really don't have much understanding of, say, the role of a miner in the network or what the miners actually do. How much education is happening? How much are your colleagues trying to uh, actually take this stuff seriously and learn about what these different terms mean and what these different entities mean? I hope the controversy over this amendment will encourage people to learn more about digital assets. Uh, I founded a financial innovation caucus with uh, Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona for the specific reason uh, of educating uh, senators and their staff, uh, members of the House and their staff, as well as visiting with financial regulators about the differences between digital assets uh, and traditional fiat assets. Uh, they are different. Uh, this requires a, a, a different set uh, of definitions. We need to come with some definitions. So I hate to take a step in the wrong direction uh, as an amendment or a provision on a bill that wasn't intended to address digital assets. We should wait and handle digital assets in an informed manner that starts with definitions of a whole broad array of digital asset uh, right. uh, there transactions. Seem to be, there seem to be kind of two things going on at once here in this particular situation because, of course, there is this reputation that a lot of people have. They're like, oh, Bitcoin is just for money laundering. It's just for tax evasion. You hear people say that all the time. So there's the question of, like, is there tax money to be collected? And then there is the more technical question that uh, you just discussed about the fact that the miners don't, wouldn't even have the uh, data or the information that would allow them to fulfill such uh, compliance requirements. How much uh, perception is there still, or how much do you see a lot of people on the Hill perceive that digital assets don't have any use other than, say, um, law, uh, evading the law? Well, there is a problem with it. Uh, when we saw in the pipeline uh, the ransom was paid in digital assets, right. uh, people said, oh my gosh, you know, they're used for criminal purposes. Uh, they didn't bother to find out that 85% of that uh, Bitcoin was retrieved, recovered within a week of that transaction. Uh, so uh, there's uh, about as half as much knowledge uh, as people need to make a clear decision about these assets. So we've got to have more education here in the U.S. Senate. Right. Now, we've been talking, of course, about Bitcoin. And when we talk about mining, uh, we're talking about proof-of-work uh, systems that use energy. But, of course, there's another debate about crypto happening right now in D.C. And that is essentially related to the intersection of crypto and securities law and some of these other tokens that are not Bitcoin, things like decentralized finance. Do you believe that there is a... Uh, essentially trading of unregistered securities going on in the broader crypto universe that regulators need to get their handle on, get a better handle on? 
Well, we do need to define when Bitcoin is a commodity, which it is, and when it is bundled uh, in a manner that makes it uh, act more like a security. Um, so I'm very confident that Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital assets uh, are correctly identified as being commodities, subject to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, uh, but that they can be uh, bundled uh, into uh, securities. That's why I think it's uh, great to work with Gary Gensler at the SEC yeah. to determine when that happens. Uh, he has interest and knowledge in digital assets. Right. Uh, we think that he'll actually be helpful uh, in uh, sculpting legislation uh, that helps make those distinctions. Let me ask you, when someone comes to you, maybe one of your colleagues, and says like, yeah, but why should I care about this? What is the value of crypto digital assets? And I, it still hurts people's heads. And it's like, okay, it's not uh, tax evasion. It's not money laundering. What do you say? Why do you believe that this is an important area to be fighting for and to um, create space for this industry to flourish in the United States? Well, first of all, I believe that uh, Bitcoin certainly is a great store of value. It's like digital gold. Uh, it's an alternative to fiat currencies, including the U.S. dollar. Uh, it creates an opportunity for people who are saving uh, to save in a very diverse asset allocation that includes uh, some U.S. dollar denominated investments and some non uh, fiat investment. So I like it as a diversifier and a store of value. But I also like it uh, for people who uh, are extremely poor and unbanked. Hmm. Uh, a great example is what happened in El Salvador. They declared Bitcoin to be legal tender. And they did it because people in the United States sending money home to a relative uh, were paying the fees associated with using Western Union, uh, and uh, right. that money is carried in a way that subjects it to theft by uh, a, a very heavy-handed criminal element in El Salvador. This allows a son in the United States to transfer money on his cell phone to his mother in El Salvador, and these people who are unbanked right. uh, can essentially transact with no fees and in much more safety than they can in, uh, in hard dollars. So uh, it's good for people who are extremely poor, uh, and it's also good as a diversifier. So I think it has some characteristics uh, that's going to make it catch on even more among both the poor and people who save. Let me ask you one more question, and that is about sort of the right to transact or perhaps transaction privacy or censorship-free transaction. And we know that if we use a, you know, a lot of people are worried that cash is going to go away and that if we have to use a corporate network or a Facebook digital currency or PayPal or something, that we're at the whim of corporations who gets to send money to whom? How much do you think that is an important value for U.S. law, uh, US laws to preserve the ability of person A to, to send person B money without any sort of person C, whether it be corporation or government, to say you're not allowed? I think it's really important. You know, we're, one of the concerns I have about the digital yuan is that it will be used by the Chinese Communist Party uh, to spy on people and how they're using their digital yuan. For example, if someone in China were to 
make a donation to a church or some unapproved activity yeah. that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't like, they're able to crack down on that person and make sure that that person can't transact in digital yuan. And if that's the only type of currency they have, uh, they've cut off their means of exchange. Uh, so it's very important that we respect uh, the uh, privacy and uh, non-government uh, involvement uh, in non-fiat currency and yet still allow the innovation so it can intersect with a traditional fiat economy. Uh, and there are ways to do that that can protect uh, the U.S. ability to collect taxes when someone uh, reaps a large capital gain in a mm -hmm. transaction in digital currencies, but at the same time allows for that digital currency uh, to be exchanged without the heavy-handed eyes of government upon every transaction and every person and how they're using their money. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. And we also caught up with what you miss regular Adam Ozimek, the chief economist at Upwork, who has a new report out called The Great Resignation. The survey takes a deep dive into how professionals are looking at their opportunities in the labor market. And we started by asking Adam what permanent changes to how people will work will come out of the pandemic. Uh, I think there's no doubt that the share of people working remotely is going to go up a lot compared to pre-pandemic. And when you talk about the new normal, it's interesting because I think a lot of businesses think that they are going back to the new normal. They're making up their minds about what their workers have to do um, and saying, you know, we're back in the office or not back in the office. And they think that's the new normal, but that's not the new normal because the power is still in a lot of workers' hands. And what we found in our survey was that 17% um, of workers who were working largely remote during the pandemic, they're considering quitting to find a job that was more remote. And 18% uh, are considering freelancing. Interesting. We were just talking about the gig economy workers, Lyft drivers, of course, there's a supply demand issue there and drives rides on Lyft or Uber are pretty expensive right now, Adam. What about the, the joy of freelancing or not thereof? I mean, are, are people already making that pivot and, and are they taking lower salaries on the back of it, but to get that flexibility? So um, people are already definitely making the jump. It's been uh, a really strong year for Upwork, I can tell you that. And also, if you look at census data, you can see that um, non-employer business registrations have been really strong through the pandemic and even through the recovery. Uh, I, I don't think that it's really a matter of having to take less pay in order to freelance. In general, in our survey of freelancing, we find that people uh, think that they make more money freelancing than they did mm -hmm. from the traditional employer. And, you know, the flexibility is extremely valuable to a lot of people. The flexibility. I, I do wonder, though, if we get to a stage, Adam, where some of the 
uh, the established businesses maybe sort of adjust to the times, whether it's uh, increasing pay or just providing that flexibility that a lot of these workers uh, want here. I mean, is there some potential for that or have we just sort of kind of just crossed some Rubicon that will never go back? Well, you know, the labor market's very diverse. Employers are very diverse. And there's not going to be one way of working and one way of operating. So you're going to have businesses operating across the spectrum of remote and across the spectrum of flexible. But I think where we're going to see the most growth is in more flexible arrangements and more remote arrangements. And, you know, for workers who truly want to be flexible to decide what hours of the day you work, what days of the week you work, you know, if you want your work amount to vary week to week, month to month and have a choice there, that's not really something that traditional employment can replicate. So. I think employers can give a lot of flexibility, and I do think that they will, but it gets to a certain point where, you know, you just, you, traditional employment can't offer the same flexibility that freelancing can. Well, just talk a little bit more about traditional employers. And you sort of say it at the beginning, they all think the new normal or the normal is going to come back, and eventually they're all going to, everyone's going to come back to the office. Maybe it'll be after Labor Day, maybe in October, maybe a little later, uh, depending on Delta. At what point is the rubber going to hit the road? And what do you expect companies and managers who expect that old normal to return to do when it sort of dawns on them that it, they can't get a, a talented labor force all back in the office like they could in December 2019? Yeah, I mean, I think the elevated quit rate already, I'm not going to say it's mostly due to people leaving because of remote work, but I do think that that is part of it that we are seeing some people already making the decision to leave their jobs because people are, their employees are telling them they have to come back. So I think we're starting to see a little bit of that traction. And, you know, it, it, I think it's basically going to correspond to the return to work plans. People think they're coming back September, October. Um, I think that's when the when people are really going to make the decision. Am I going back or am I looking for new work? And, it you know, from our survey, it sounds like a lot of them are going to be looking for new work. I think employers... Uh, you know, they have to they have to realize that just because something is not the optimal way from their perspective, from a management perspective, that's not the end of the discussion. If they can't hire people, if they can't retain people, you know, they may have to change their optimal way of working. And, you know, that's the nature of competition. Adam, how do you rate how long this will last or not? Is there a this is a, how people feel in the moment? Yes, it's also as we still see the Delta variant out there. And do you think at some point, two years' time, we'll all go back to actually craving being in office in mm -hmm. some time or, or getting back to the city hustle in some way? Is this, dare I say, some sort of fad, some sort of immediate backlash to what's just occurred in our lives and then we'll sort of slowly but surely find some different equilibrium again? I really don't think so. You know, we've done surveys of managers where we ask them what share of workers are going to be remote five years out. So we specifically ask them to think about the longer term. And those numbers are still really high. They're nowhere near pre-pandemic levels. We're still talking, you know, 25, 20 percent of the labor market remote. So those are really big permanent changes. That's from the management perspective, which I think is going to be more conservative. And that's focused on the long run. So I don't think it's a fad. And I also think, you know, the fact that people are willing to quit their jobs over it suggests that they um, are pretty serious about it. And, you know, you don't quit your job over some sort of short term uh, light consideration. You do it when you have a really big disagreement with your employer. You know success when you see it or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. 
the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This week, earnings season largely wrapped up. One company that reported second quarter results was Booking Holdings, the parent company of the travel search sites Booking.com, Priceline, Kayak, Cheap Flights, and Open Table. The company posted a better than expected surge in room night reservations and expressed optimism that the pace of travel will continue to improve as more people are vaccinated and restrictions are loosened. So we spoke with CEO Glenn Fogel and asked what he is seeing in the travel sector right now amid increasing concerns over the Delta variant. Well, thanks for having me. And of course, we all are concerned. We see what's happening with some of the numbers. On the other hand, though, we've been dealing with uh, different problems with this pandemic for a long time now, 18 months, maybe more for some countries. So we know there are sometimes some setbacks and such, but we are very pleased with our numbers that we announced last night. We are pleased to see the sequential growth in our room nights going up 59% quarter over quarter. So we're pleased with where we are. We recognize there are some issues, there are some concerns, but the long run still as bright as it's always been in terms of my mind, we know this pandemic will end. We do know that we're going to get back to travel the way it used to be. The thing we don't know is how fast, and we just hope more people will get that vaccine, and that will help make this thing go away faster. It's sounding pretty bullish about looking forward. Uh, how much are you seeing variations from region to region from the sort of types of traffic that you're seeing as well? I mean, where is the strongest from a geographical perspective at the moment, Glenn? So we talked about this a little bit, that Europe had the largest recovery in the last quarter for us, but the U.S. is going very strong also, and the U.S. is our number one country. And we also pointed out that Asia definitely having some problems there in travel, and it's because of the vaccine, lack of vaccines, and slow distribution. And also, the countries in Asia are being much more strict about how people can travel or not travel, depending on what the health situations are. That's hurting travel a lot in Asia. But overall, long run, I do believe we're going to be getting back to where we used to be. And we see it in terms of the UK had the terrible Delta variant uh, upswing. Now it's going down. We saw in India, big Delta upswing. Now we see it going down. And I am hopeful, we don't know, but I'm hopeful that the U.S. will follow a similar pattern, will peak out, and then it will start going down. Uh, you know, Glenn, when uh, you know booking uh, became popular, Priceline obviously uh, before uh, before it was rebranded here. Uh, you know, you went there to sort of book with a major airline or a major hotel. We're now in a day and age where, of course, Airbnb, uh, Verbo, and sort of all these sort of alternative sort of uh, lodging and travel alternatives are out there now. I'm wondering how you integrate that into onto the Booking.com site and just into your own ecosystem so that you're sort of along for the ride for what is clearly uh, just a transition in the way that we uh, travel and the way that we lodge. 
Well, we've talked about how strong we are in the alternative accommodations. We want to talk about a non-hotel, a home, an apartment, a villa, something on the beach. We talk about, look, we've been doing that since 2000 at Booking.com, and we've been very strong in Europe. We recognize in the U.S. we're not as strong. We talk about how we're continuing to build that out. But I, am, I, I know we have great competitors, and we're going to keep fighting it out. But I'm not concerned about that. We've been in this business for a long time. We are the leader. We've been the leader for a long time. And one of the advantages we have is that we have the homes and the hotels, the biggest distribution system for both types of properties. So when somebody comes to us, many times they don't know what they want yet. They come to us, they compare, they contrast, and then they choose what they want. And we're able to offer whatever it is. Uh, Glenn, I want to ask about the future of the uh, lodging business. And there is this theory that's been put forward, including by some in the industry, that hotel bookings will start to resemble airline bookings more, where there's more disambiguated and more separated by price. And, you know, you're okay, you pay by bag, and maybe you pay extra for towels every day, or maybe you pay extra for making the bed every night. Do you see that? Is there going to be a permanent change in how lodging is priced going forward in the wake of this? Well, what we always want is to have transparency. And we want to have a way for a customer to understand what they're buying, when they're buying, and one of the things I really do not like is this idea of drip pricing. And that's a situation yeah. where a product person puts out and says it's something for this, but then you find it's a little bit more for something else that's required. So, for example, let's take resort fees. Nobody likes a resort fee. What we really need, though, is we need a government regulation to prohibit that type of activity because every company says, look, I don't like it. But if I don't do it, if I put all the prices all up front is one thing, I'm not as competitive against somebody else who does that drip pricing type thing. So it would be helpful if the uh, administration would come out with regulations that makes transparent pricing a requirement. Everybody would be better off, I believe, by that. Interesting. Glenn, I want to ask you as a business leader right now, you sounded pretty optimistic about, well, the next quarter in terms of growth continuing despite this ongoing Delta variant we can concerned about. But from you as the business leader, what are your return to work processes looking like at the moment? And, and are you changing your viewpoint? Well, look, it's obviously nobody really knows how the right way to work in the future is going to be. We know that many people are saying we're going to try and do experiments. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to come out and say we're going to try a couple of days a week in some areas. We're going to see how it works. And then we'll say, does that work? Or do we need to have everybody in the office? Or can we do it with lots of people not in the office at all? We'll find out what the right thing to do. Right now, we're not even sure when we want to ask people to start coming back to the office in large numbers because of this Delta variant. And we're concerned about the health situations. But we'll work it out. One thing that could be very interesting is if we have a lot of people who are working from home part of the week and in the office part of the week, I can see a lot of people saying, Thursday, Friday, let's go work somewhere else mini vacations that can help build the travel industry sure you're working thursday friday but you're working from a beach or a lake and you're using your you know you're traveling and enjoying life a little bit more perhaps that's something that we can all look forward to i think and that's it for what you missed this week if you like the show make sure to subscribe and rate us at apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts you can catch our show every weekday from 3 30 to 5 p.m on bloomberg tv and from 4 to 5 p.m on twitter Thanks for listening and have a great week.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.